The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was August 4, 1892. Six police officers were searching the home of Andrew and Abby Borden, whose bodies had just been found, slaughtered by a hatchet. Officer George Allen was in charge of the crime scene, but he was shorthanded. Nearly every patrolman was out of town attending the annual police force picnic. As news spread that one of the wealthiest men in Fall River had been violently murdered, along with his wife, Dozens of spectators gathered outside. As the growing audience began pushing its way into the house, things became chaotic. Officer Allen was unsure how to proceed. Should he assign men to break up the crowd before the crime scene was contaminated? Or did he need every available officer scouring for clues? So far, barely any evidence had been found. There was almost no blood in the house. No murder weapon could be located. The Bordens lived on a very busy street, yet no one had seen anything suspicious. It seemed the murderer broke into the house at the precise second needed to avoid all six people living there. He made no sounds and left no signs of a struggle. Each room was immaculately tidy, as though nothing had happened. Mystified, Officer Allen returned to the Fall River Police Station, certain of only one thing. Whoever the murderer was... He was unbelievably lucky. Then again, maybe he wasn't a he at all. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we're continuing our discussion of Lizzie Borden, the only suspect ever charged for the murder of her parents, Andrew and Abby. Though a jury ruled her innocent, it is generally agreed she is the only one who could have committed the crimes— Last week, we learned how she carried out the murders. This week, we'll discuss how, 
with all the evidence pointing to her, Lizzie evaded prison and capital punishment. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. The Borden family tragedy is one of the most debated, unsolved murders of all time. It doesn't help that court transcripts, the coroner's inquest on the victims, and documents from the preliminary murder investigation are now missing. There is no chance that these documents were simply misplaced. The wealthy Borden family had connections to court officials, law enforcement, and nearly every newspaper in town. Lizzie made sure nothing was ever printed suggesting her guilt. After the trial, Lizzie paid off a local printer and had every book detailing her case destroyed before it hit stores. One such book is called The Fall River Tragedy, A History of the Borden Murders by Edwin H. Porter. The original prints were destroyed, but it was finally published in 1985, over 90 years after it was written. A large amount of that source material has gone into the shaping of this episode. Porter, who was a Fall River newspaper journalist, covered every major event in the Borden case. He believed key members of the town conspired to hide Lizzie's guilt. It's no wonder, then, that Lizzie worked to keep it hidden her entire life. Adding to the mystery, Lizzie's three lawyers refused to discuss Lizzie Borden with anyone after the trial. They gathered their notes and hid them in an old tin hip bath, which was hidden from the public until 2011, 119 years after the trial. The research for this episode was assembled through great effort by a dedicated few, people desperate for the truth regarding the crimes of Lizzie Borden. It was particularly hot on August 4, 1892. Officer George Allen would have been miserable running back and forth all day between the Borden household and the police station. He conducted preliminary interviews with Lizzie, the maid, the neighbors, and the family physician, Dr. Seabury Warren Bowen, all of whom had access to the crime scene for at least 30 minutes before police arrived. According to Lizzie's interview that day, her father Andrew left home at 9 a.m., his house guest and former brother-in-law, John Morse, also left around that time. Bridget, the Borden maid, decided to rest in her attic bedroom, while Abby made up the guest room on the second floor. Lizzie claimed her father returned home at 10.30 a.m., after which she went to the backyard shed, searching for a piece of lead to use as a fishing weight. She was gone 15 or 20 minutes. When she returned, she found her father murdered. She sent Bridget to fetch a nearby physician and phoned the police station at 11.15 a.m. Police arrived immediately, followed by the medical examiner. As news of the murders spread, dozens of spectators gathered outside. Officer Allen had ordered the six policemen on duty to continue their search for a murder weapon and any clues left throughout the house. With a giant crowd gathering outside, Allen made his first misstep. He asked a civilian, Charles S. Sawyer, to keep people from entering the house. Not much is known about Sawyer, except that for some reason he was already at the house when police arrived. He didn't guard the door for very long, choosing instead to look about the crime scene. While Charles wandered the house, police were in the basement, inspecting axes for blood. 
Upstairs, with no one to guard the door, a number of people trampled the crime scene, contaminating it by today's forensic standards. One such person was Dr. Bowen, one of the first to arrive on the scene. Remarkably, one police officer later testified that Bowen found a note in the kitchen written by Lizzie and tore it to pieces before investigators could read it. Bowen declared it was unimportant, but no one will ever know what it said. There were a number of other mistakes made in the early hours of the investigation. Lizzie complained she was feeling ill, so the police left her alone in her room without checking her for blood or even looking inside her room. A small glance inside would have revealed a stack of sanitary napkins soaked in blood. Lizzie later claimed that these were from menstruation, but researchers believe she wiped herself clean of blood before sending Bridget for help. After that first day, police had only one lead, a mysterious man who Lizzie, and only Lizzie, had seen arguing with Andrew days earlier on the porch. Lizzie didn't know who he was, but from the conversation she allegedly overheard, she suspected he was a farm worker. The man wanted to open a store at the farm that Andrew was about to transfer to Abby. This business would generate revenue for Andrew, requiring him to do little in return. Lizzie said that Andrew was opposed to the idea and refused to let the man open a store on his property. This story struck many as odd, since Andrew Borden almost never turned down an opportunity to make money. This is the millionaire who sold eggs from a basket as he walked to work for the extra pocket change. A more likely conclusion is that Lizzie made up the story to build a case that one of her father's enemies murdered him out of malice. This is a lie that Lizzie would commit to for the rest of her life. Before we start to delve into Lizzie's psychology, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. According to witnesses, Lizzie was oddly calm the day of the murders, but according to her sister, Lizzie was always sensitive and high-strung. As a teacher, she would break down if a child showed the slightest rebuff. You'd think then that Lizzie would be devastated after finding the dead bodies of her parents, but she exhibited no signs of shock. Her actions were highly controlled. According to the Association for Psychological Science, a predominant reason criminals are caught is because they feel guilt. This causes them to make mistakes or outright confess. Lizzie, however, probably felt little guilt. In her mind, Abby deserved to be murdered for threatening the Borden sister inheritance. Her father continued to transfer real estate into Abby's name, despite Lizzie's blatant protest five years earlier. She loved her father, but like a dog that had bitten her, he'd have to be put down too. Clear of any guilt then, Lizzie was sticking to her story, even though it was becoming more improbable by the minute. Lizzie was known to be a terrible liar, and as the investigators combed the house, she got caught up in her own web of lies. When Dr. Bowen suggested someone fetch a sheet to cover Andrew's body, Lizzie replied, better get two. This was before anyone had discovered the body of Abby Borden upstairs. Investigators were also confused why Lizzie didn't look for Abby after she had found Andrew's body. After all, Lizzie had just told Dr. Bowen she thought Abby was home when her father was murdered. Lizzie would later change this detail. In court, she testified that she believed Abby was out at the market, and that's why she didn't look for her. 
Another problem arose when the investigators deduced from the coagulated blood around Abby's body that she'd been murdered two hours before Andrew. Lizzie didn't know that forensics could diagnose a person's time of death down to the hour. This two-hour gap meant one of two things. Either Lizzie was inside the house with the murderer for two hours and didn't know it, or she wasn't telling the truth. Lizzie wanted everyone to think a murderer rushed into the house to kill Abby and Andrew in under 20 minutes. Her alibi was that she was in the shed, looking for a fishing weight, and didn't see anything. When police realized that Andrew and Abby died two hours apart, Lizzie knew she was becoming a suspect. Unsure how to proceed, Lizzie did the only thing she could think of to buy more time. She fainted. After a few minutes, she collected herself, saying she didn't feel well. In a likely attempt to distract officers from her implausible story, Lizzie then told the police that everyone in the household had become sick a few nights ago from what they believed was spoiled milk. Now, however, Lizzie was certain the farm worker she saw arguing with her father had attempted to poison the entire family. Acting under this assumption, police ordered Abby and Andrew's stomachs be removed and sent to a specialist at Harvard Medical Laboratories to be analyzed for poisons. No toxic traces were discovered. However, if prussic acid had been used, it would have absorbed quickly and thus been difficult to detect. Coincidentally, prussic acid was the same toxin that druggist Ellie Bentz refused to sell to Lizzie before the murder. By reporting a poisoning now, Lizzie was actually pointing the police towards a clue. 36 hours later, Eli Bentz came forward and investigators caught their first break. At 10 p.m. on August 5th, they brought Bentz to the Borden home, where he identified Lizzie as the woman who'd attempted to buy prussic acid. Police had immediately suspected Lizzie, since she was one of two people alone in the home as the murders took place. Following Bence's identification, the police were now certain. They waited five more days, however, before making an arrest. Over those five days, Lizzie's sister Emma returned home early from vacation after being telegraphed about the murders. The first thing the two sisters did was hire a detective to find the anonymous farm worker Lizzie claimed was arguing with her father days before the murder. They also set up a $5,000 reward for the arrest and conviction of their parents' real killer. Emma Borden publicly supported Lizzie's story about the anonymous man and would continue to do so for the rest of her life. Lizzie continued to assert her innocence, even as she was openly burning evidence. Shortly after being identified from the drugstore, she threw one of her two household dresses into the fireplace, telling everyone it had red paint on it. That's according to Alice Russell, Lizzie's next-door neighbor, who saw her do it. Russell was visiting the Bordens after the police left for the evening. Though they'd searched Lizzie's bedroom, they didn't find the dress. Lizzie was clever enough to hang another dress on top of it, on the same hanger. In her account of the case, author Virginia Lincoln pokes fun at the male detectives for not knowing this common space-saving trick. Since the detectives only looked at the immediately visible garments, they missed the dress entirely. During the trial, Russell testified she saw no blood on the navy blue dress that was burned, not a drop. While Lizzie was burning it, however, Alice Russell told her it was foolish to do so in front of a witness. She was absolutely right. Researchers have long contended that this was the dress Lizzie wore while murdering her father and stepmother. 
She selected it for its dark color the morning of the murders. Before police arrived on that first day, Lizzie changed into her other house dress, a pink wrapper, and hid the navy blue dress in her room. Though this vital evidence had been destroyed, she was still the prime suspect. One week after the double homicide, the Fall River police arrested Lizzie Borden, the timid Sunday school teacher, for murdering her own parents. Such a story was destined to become a national spectacle. Within no time at all, over 30 out-of-town newspapers picked up the story. All of them accused the Fall River Police Department of being careless with its investigation and wrote that the prussic acid story provided by druggist Eli Benz was inauthentic. According to Edwin H. Porter, a Fall River journalist, few reporters bothered to print facts. They simply sold newspapers by sensationalizing the story. They depicted Lizzie as an innocent bystander, a poor victim who not only lost her parents, but now stood accused of wielding the murder weapon. With the crimes garnering more attention than she ever imagined, and no other suspects to be found, things looked grim for Lizzie. Investigators had motive, Lizzie's open hatred for her stepmother Abby, as well as the fortune she now stood to inherit. Lizzie was also alone with both victims minutes before they died. In 1892, the punishment for her crimes would be two consecutive life sentences. Or worse, she could be hanged. Using her sizable savings, she assembled an expensive legal team. In the end, she would pay over $25,000 in legal expenses, nearly $700,000 today, to avoid the hangman's rope. Money is nothing if your life hangs in the balance, and money could be Lizzie's only way out. As Borden scholar Virginia Lincoln put it, quote, attorneys get paid to believe their clients are innocent, and Lizzie's lawyers got paid better than most, end quote. Up next, we'll take a look at how Lizzie's lawyers fought for her innocence, even as all the evidence pointed toward their client. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. Not guilty. Those are the only words Lizzie uttered during her arraignment on the morning of Friday, August 12, 1892. Her trial lawyer, Mr. Andrew Jennings, had urged her to remain quiet otherwise. Jennings was a litigator, renowned for his intelligence, brazenness, and wild temper. He was the best lawyer money could buy. During Lizzie's arraignment, he was already arguing Fall River was too biased a location for legal proceedings. 
This was an easy argument to make, as spectators were already crowding the courthouse steps. For the last few days and for the next year, wherever Lizzie went, she would be followed by hundreds of similarly curious onlookers, gawkers from down under the hill, who never knew Lizzie personally and believed in the innocent persona put forth by the papers. Even during Andrew and Abby's funeral procession, Lizzie could hardly escape the onlookers. It got so bad that, at one point, John Morse locked two reporters in the Borden family barn for snooping around at odd hours of the night. The judge agreed with Jennings that Fall River was not a suitable place to incarcerate Lizzie. He had her transferred to the county jail at Taunton, a higher security jailhouse 18 miles away. Lizzie traveled by rail car to her new home in Taunton. She spent the next 10 days in a small cell, seven feet wide, complete with bed, toilet, and table. She requested no newspapers be brought to her cell. She had no interest in reading about the case. The first night in a jail cell would be terrible for anyone. According to studies conducted by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, quote, when people first enter prison, they're introduced to unknown levels of stress and difficulty. They're forced to adapt to a harsh institutional routine and subjected to a diminished, stigmatized status, as well as extremely sparse material conditions. Over time, this begins to change the way people think, act, and feel, end quote. According to Edwin H. Porter in his book, The Fall River Tragedy, A History of the Borden Murders, Lizzie was received at the Taunton Jail by the matron, Mrs. Wright, who would be caring for Lizzie during her stay. Years earlier, Mrs. Wright had lived in Fall River. When meeting Lizzie at the jailhouse, she was surprised to find she already knew her. She asked Lizzie, quote, Are you not the Lizzie Borden who, as a child, used to play with my daughter, Isabel? End quote. Lizzie nodded her head, yes. Both women were brought to tears. Lizzie spent the rest of the evening sobbing with Mrs. Wright comforting her. Throughout her 10-day stay at the Taunton Jailhouse, newspapers built anticipation for Lizzie's trial, positing endless theories for who the real killer could be and predicting how long it would be until she suffered a complete breakdown. Masses were held in Lizzie's honor, praying that she return quickly to Fall River. Her innocence became a foregone conclusion. Every day, more people believed she was a patsy, a victim, an unfortunate woman wronged by a broken system. Edwin H. Porter points out that while the word unfortunate was used often to describe Lizzie in print, it was never once used to describe the victims, whose deaths were not nearly as heartbreaking as Lizzie's imprisonment. The trial was scheduled back in Fall River at 2 p.m. on Monday, August 22, 1892, nearly three weeks after the murders. In order to evade onlookers, Lizzie arrived at the courthouse three hours early, before crowds started gathering. As two o'clock drew near, the courthouse was filled with law students and an unusual number of physicians. They had an interest in the victim's toxicology reports and the multiple hatchet wounds. Such violent cases were rare, after all. Two o'clock came and went, but Lizzie's legal team, comprised of three lawyers and their assistants, had not arrived. Soon, it was 2.30. By 2.45, the court was becoming agitated. No one had communicated they would be late. At 2.50, Lizzie's lawyers arrived, asking for the trial to be rescheduled. 
Expert witnesses who were scheduled to testify were still examining vital artifacts from the home of the deceased. They were unable to appear until they concluded their reports. The trial was postponed three days until August 25th. A few days later, the night before the trial, something very odd happened between Lizzie and her sister Emma. When it first appeared in newspapers, people called it fake, a lie to prejudice the public against Lizzie. It has since, however, been confirmed by Lizzie's guard and caretaker, Matron Reagan, who overheard it. Lizzie was sitting on a cot, waiting with Reagan in the matron's room, where prisoners held supervised visits. When Emma Borden walked in, Lizzie immediately asked, You gave me away, didn't you? Emma replied, I only told Mr. Jennings what I thought he ought to know. Lizzie was agitated. She said, Remember, Emma, that I will never give in one inch, never. Lizzie then lay down on the cot, turned her back to her sister, and allowed an hour to pass without saying a word. Emma then exited the jailhouse. No one knew what the sisters were discussing, but the conversation was soon picked up by several papers, leaked by Matron Reagan or someone she'd told. Within a day, members of Lizzie's church prepared a document stating the conversation never took place. They attempted to force Matron Reagan to sign it, but she refused, bringing the matter before Marshal Rufus B. Hilliard. The marshal prohibited the matron from signing the document in an attempt to stop the harassment. When Mr. Jennings found out, he was irate. He perpetuated a newspaper story that the matron was being refused a right to deny the account. Which was technically true, but Jennings didn't mention that the matron had never wanted to deny the conversation at all. Now, the public was unsure what to believe. All they knew was that their unfortunate Lizzie was stuck in a jail cell. The next morning, at Lizzie's hearing, so many people flooded the courthouse steps that roads were closed for blocks. Inside the courthouse, over 50 reporters were present. Their elbows touched as they wrote. This public scrutiny was taking its toll on everyone involved in the case, not just the Bordens, the police force, Lawyers and presiding judge were under immense pressure as Lizzie's trial was quickly becoming a proverbial circus. So much so that a strange occurrence took place the first day Lizzie entered the courtroom. Whether it began consciously or not, no one can say, but the moment she walked into the room, the audience stood in reverence. Proceedings began late because of how long it took to seat everyone. First to testify was medical examiner Dolan, he described Andrew's wounds, which were the most ghastly he'd ever observed. Abby's were even worse. Lizzie's lawyers objected to Dolan reading directly from his notes, since his description was so graphic. They also objected to his assertion that Abby was murdered two hours before Andrew. Their objections, however, were overruled. Next to testify was architect Thomas Kieran, who designed the Borden home. By showing blueprints, he demonstrated how improbable it would be for someone to break in and commit two murders, completely unseen by Lizzie and Bridget. Again, Lizzie's lawyers objected, on grounds of overgeneralization. The next day, John Morse recounted his whereabouts the morning of the murders. His niece confirmed his alibi, and he was never a suspect in the case. Bridget Sullivan, the maid, was called to the stand next. She confirmed repeatedly that she locked every door of the house that morning and even had to let Andrew in because he'd forgotten his key. 
She remembered Lizzie was upstairs when Andrew got home because she heard her laughing. One can only imagine what Lizzie was laughing about upstairs with the body of her stepmother. Nervous laughter has been documented in psychological experiments under high levels of emotional stress, particularly when harm has been inflicted upon others. Neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran has theorized such laughter is an attempt to convince ourselves whatever we've just encountered isn't as horrible as it appears. Bridget confirmed Lizzie was upstairs when Andrew got home. Lizzie changed this detail in her own story several times, saying she was in the kitchen, the sitting room, or on the stairs when Andrew arrived home. Bridget was unable to recall which dress Lizzie had worn that morning, if it were the blue one that was later burned or the pink one that Lizzie had on when the police arrived. Most importantly, Bridget testified that when Lizzie called out for her in the attic, she yelled out, quote, Father is dead. Someone has killed him, end quote. At Lizzie's inquest months earlier, she was insistent that she said, Father is hurt, and that she did not assume he was murdered until Dr. Bowen arrived. The last thing Bridget remembered Lizzie saying on the morning of the crimes was that whoever murdered Andrew must have also poisoned the entire family two nights before, since they had all been sick Wednesday and Thursday. Next to testify was druggist Eli Bentz, confirming Lizzie tried to buy prussic acid the night before the murders, but he had refused to sell her the poison. It's likely that Lizzie attempted to poison Abby and Andrew on Tuesday night with a more readily available toxin, though it's unclear exactly what poison she might have tried. When she realized she needed something stronger, she attempted to purchase prussic acid. However, when Bence refused to sell her the poison, she had to improvise a new murder method. Bence's testimony would eventually be ruled entirely inadmissible, however, due in large part to the next witness, chemical expert Professor Edward S. Wood of Harvard College. According to a local paper, there was deathly stillness in the little courtroom as Wood was called to the stand. Quote, Lizzie did not look as strong as she had on preceding days, and not a sound was made during the doctor's testimony, upon which many believed the entire trial depended. End quote. Wood first detailed the stomachs of Abby and Andrew, which he had received by express mail and examined immediately. There was an audible, collective sigh as he declared the stomachs contained no traces of prussic acid. This made the druggist's previous testimony seem more or less irrelevant. Wood then described the stained clothes and shoes police had confiscated from Lizzie's bedroom. It was hoped that these garments would contain traces of blood— his examination revealed not a drop on the entirety of her belongings. If Lizzie were able to change clothes and wipe herself clean before police could see, that would explain how she'd rid herself of any blood spatter. Lastly, Wood had examined an axe found in the Borden basement. The only axe among their collection that was not covered in dust had been recently wiped clean and contained several hairs stuck in the handle. Wood testified that the hairs found were not human, most likely from a cow, and that the axe contained no traces of human blood. This was definitely not the weapon used for the murders. The fate of the actual murder weapon still remains unknown. According to a newspaper account, at this point in Professor Wood's testimony, quote, the pent-up excitement could be contained no longer, and great sighs of relief were heard, end quote. This was a great victory for Lizzie's defense. 
in time, they would eliminate the prussic acid subject entirely. Finally, Lizzie herself was called to the stand. Her testimony contradicted several earlier statements she had made concerning her whereabouts and the timeline of the murders. Her lawyers were successful in attributing these changes to her initial shock in finding her father murdered. Whatever the reason, her latest story was much more polished. She stumbled only once, explaining her seemingly random search for a fishing weight at the time of the murders. She had provided this alibi earlier, and it was too late to change it. The following day, Lizzie's counsel took the floor. The three lawyers did everything they could to invalidate the testimonies of those that came before. They cast shade on Bridget, suggesting there were several times throughout the morning when she could have committed the murders. Though they were unable to convince anyone Bridget swung the hatchet, by introducing the possibility, Lizzie's lawyers may have created enough reasonable doubt to garner even more support for their client. Confusion and doubt turned out to be major tactics for Lizzie's defense. They picked holes in the report given by the medical examiner and completely tore apart Eli Bence's testimony, arguing he'd identified Lizzie incorrectly. They even downplayed the bad blood between Lizzie and Abby, insisting they'd had a single argument five years prior and nothing more. In his closing remarks, Mr. Jennings dared anyone to come forward with a single incriminating fact about Lizzie Borden, the honest, educated churchgoer who had never been convicted of a crime or violent deed in her life. Their argument was compelling. No one saw Lizzie commit the murders. Science failed to find even a drop of blood on her person. There was no murder weapon, and her motive had been hastily assumed by a bumbling police force. When Jennings finished his remarks, the courtroom erupted into applause. Judge Blaisdell did not silence the celebration, but allowed it to quiet down on its own. Tears reportedly filled his eyes as he told the room, quote, it would be my pleasure if I could say, Lizzie, I judge you probably not guilty. You may go home, end quote. He paused, then asked the court to imagine that a man were standing in Lizzie's place. If that man had been the first to find Andrew's body, quote, and the only account he could give was the unreasonable one that he was out in the barn looking for sinkers, would there be any question in the minds of men what should be done? End quote. Judge Blaisdell concluded that, though it pained him greatly, Lizzie probably was guilty. He deferred the case to the Superior Court, the protocol for such a case at the time, and ordered Lizzie to appear before a grand jury on the first Monday of November. An outpouring of public support and a team of razor-sharp litigators had not been enough to win Lizzie's first trial. Her fate would now be in the hands of a grand jury. So far, her legal team had played by the rules. To win this final trial, however, they would resort to threats, bribery, and every manner of legal loopholes. Up next, those loopholes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. Now back to the story. According to journalist Edwin H. Porter, when Lizzie Borden lost her first trial on September 1st, 1892, she, quote, sat like a statue of stone, totally unmoved, without the slightest emotion or interest in her proceedings, end quote. Lizzie's constant passivity can be attributed to her daily morphine dose. Her doctor, in a common practice of the time, regularly administered it throughout her 10-month incarceration. Her lawyers fully endorsed the practice, wishing to keep Lizzie quiet and calm during her defense. Lizzie returned to the Taunton Jail. Matron Wright, formerly of Fall River, made Lizzie's next three months as comfortable as possible. Every once in a while, a newspaper would run a story or an exclusive interview with Lizzie that turned out to be fake. Lizzie herself still refused to read the papers at all. On November 7, 1892, 21 men convened to consider Lizzie's case. They took two weeks to consider the entirety of evidence and hear all testimonies again, concluding on November 21st. By December 2nd, the jury returned three indictments against Lizzie, one for the murder of Andrew, one for the murder of Abby, and a third charging her for the murder of both. Out of 21 men, 20 voted that she was guilty— and would go to trial at the Superior Court. Lizzie stayed in the Taunton Jail five more months until May 1893. Throughout the winter and spring, a series of cartoons accompanied her newspaper articles, depicting great harm on anyone who believed Lizzie was guilty. When a cholera scare erupted in New York, the lawyers prosecuting Lizzie were drawn dying of the dreaded disease. This is how passionate Lizzie's supporters had become. On May 8th, Lizzie was taken to New Bedford, Massachusetts, and arraigned before Judge J.W. Hammond of the Superior Court. She pled not guilty to all three charges, and her trial was scheduled for June 5th, 1893. Lizzie's final trial commenced on June 5th and lasted 13 days. The testimonies and arguments unfolded similarly to the first trial, but the litigators were much more dramatic, if you can imagine that. One of the differences of this trial was the degree to which Bridget Sullivan was questioned. In August, the defense was outraged how long prosecutors took to interrogate Lizzie, while Bridget, also at home during the murders, got off lightly. They made up for it this time. Bridget began her testimony in the early morning and was not relieved until 4 p.m., Lizzie's lawyers found it particularly difficult to believe that if she were washing the windows from the outside at the time of Abby's murder, as she claimed, that she saw nothing. They also found Bridget's alibi of resting in her bedroom as difficult to believe as Lizzie's 20-minute visit to the shed. Another key difference was the removal of druggist Eli Benz's testimony. Judge Hammond ruled that since no traces of poison were found in the victim's stomachs, Lizzie's attempt to purchase prussic acid was too remote in time to be relevant. Bentz had sworn that Lizzie was in his store little more than 12 hours before the murders. 
this is hardly too remote in time. This fact has led many to believe that Judge Hammond was bought off by the defense, potentially along with several other witnesses and even members of the jury. This time around, Lizzie changed her story yet again. When describing her whereabouts at the time of Andrew's murder, she once again agreed she was in the shed looking for iron. But now, she remembered it wasn't for a fishing weight at all. She needed it to fix the screen on the back door, which had been broken. This, conceivably, could have allowed anyone to enter the premises, even if all the doors were locked. The defense explained any changes in Lizzie's story as a result of the incredible amount of stress she had endured over the past year. She was still in a state of shock when the investigators took her statement, with no lawyer present to advise her. It was entirely unfair, they argued, to expect her to remember exactly what had transpired until she had the opportunity to collect herself. When all was said and done, the 12 members of the jury retired to their room for little more than an hour. And though every legal proceeding before this one, the hearing, the preliminary trial, and the indictment had found Lizzie guilty, this final jury voted her innocent. Perhaps it was her gender that had swayed them, or her wealth, or 10 months of newspaper articles asserting her innocence from day one. But whatever the reason, on June 20th, 1893, Lizzie returned guiltless to her friends and home in Fall River. Lizzie, soon to be 33, stood to collect a sizable inheritance, valued today at over $7 million. She certainly didn't want to continue living in the tiny home where her father and stepmother were slain. Her first order of business, then, was purchasing a large estate up on the hill, the glamorous neighborhood where she dreamed of living since she was a little girl. She planned to live the rest of her days in her new house with her sister, Emma. According to Fall River resident Virginia Lincoln, most townspeople believed that, quote, Lizzie moved up on the hill with tactless promptness after the murders, end quote. This didn't seem to bother Lizzie much, though. She had more money than she could ever spend and was still receiving profits every year from her father's businesses and real estate holdings. Both sisters faded as much as possible from the public, having experienced their fair share of celebrity. Lizzie legally changed her name from Lizzie Andrew Borden to Lizbeth Andrews Borden. One has to wonder why Lizzie assumed such an obvious alias after the trial. Perhaps she was only pretending to hide because it increased the mystery of her celebrity. Bridget Sullivan also withdrew from the spotlight. Curiously, she returned to her native Ireland soon after the trial ended. Bridget could not have afforded this costly steamship ticket on her own, and when she arrived in Ireland, she didn't stay very long before moving back to America, settling in Montana. Nearly all researchers agree that Bridget was paid by Lizzie to leave the country so that the story could settle down. Lizzie, on the other hand, by no means settled down. She had always had decadent tastes, and in the years following the trial, she turned her attention to the arts. She struck up a friendship with Nance O'Neill, a then-famous actress of stage and silent cinema. Lizzie spent more and more time with Nance and her artistic friends, much to the displeasure of Emma, who considered artists inappropriate, if not sinful, companions. One night in 1905, 12 years after the trial, Lizzie threw a party in Nance's honor, the most extravagant Fall River had ever seen. There were caterers, rented palm trees, even a full orchestra. 
Lizzie had a splendid time. Her sister, however, did not. That night, Emma Borden moved away to Providence, Rhode Island, and eventually to New Hampshire, where she would stay the rest of her life. She was quoted as saying that the loose living Lizzie had come to prefer became absolutely unbearable. It's widely believed that Lizzie was involved in a romantic relationship with Nance, though this was never proven. That may have been the wedge that drove the sisters apart, or perhaps Lizzie's decadent parties had simply become too much for Emma. It's curious that, after everything that happened, Lizzie elected to remain in Fall River. At any time, she could have moved to another part of the world to hide, as Emma attempted to do. Perhaps she was only pretending to avoid attention in order to attract it. It's widely believed that second-born children, such as Lizzie, have a fundamental desire for acknowledgement and attention. As author and psychologist Dr. Mary Wallace points out, younger children often feel terribly inadequate since their development is so far behind that of their sibling. They lack the understanding to know the problem has to do with their age difference, and later in life search for ways to feel valuable and visible. The Borden murders, brutal though they were, dulled in the public consciousness, becoming the stuff of local legend. Virginia Lincoln recalls, as a child, asking why no one ever spoke to their neighbor. Her mother replied, quote, Well, dear, she was very unkind to her mother and father. End quote. Whether Fall River resented the attention or not, Lizzie had cemented the town's place in true crime history, sparking wild debates, books, and even films for more than a hundred years. In this way, Lizzie attained the value and visibility she may have longed for so deeply for so long. In 1926, at the age of 65, Lizzie checked into a hospital for pneumonia under the unconvincing alias Mary Smith Borden. The nurses were nice to feign ignorance, but they all recognized her. She was the biggest celebrity Fall River ever had. On June 1st, 1927, at the age of 66, Lizzie passed away from pneumonia. The same day that Lizzie died, Emma fell and broke her hip. She passed away nine days later at the age of 76. Lizzie's last public act, her funeral, was as confusing as anything in her trial. A handful of her closest friends were invited to services at her home, but when they arrived, they were informed that Lizzie had been buried the night before, with no service, by men dressed in black, as discreetly as humanly possible. After half a lifetime of fame, Lizzie wanted to be laid to rest in secret. After her death, Lizzie left nearly all of her remaining $225,000 to charity, Her estate was valued at about half of what her sister Emma left behind. Lizzie had, after all, lived much more extravagantly. Lizzie also had remained undyingly faithful to her father. While Emma sold off his businesses that were failing near the end of Fall River's economic boom, Lizzie refused to do such a thing. She considered it sacrilege to sell her father's business. For better or worse, she remained his devoted daughter— losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in the process. Today, the Bordens are buried together at the Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River. Lizzie's headstone reads, Lisbeth Andrews Borden. Emma lies near her, as does their sister Alice, who died as an infant. There too lie Andrew's wives, Sarah and Abby, with Andrew resting between them. Still on his finger dangles a golden ring, 
given to him with eternal love from his youngest daughter and murderer, Lizzie Borden. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of Parcast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Freddie Beckley and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 